We're now going to spend some time in the Word. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark as a church, and we're getting closer to the end of that. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 12. And as you're doing that, uh, we can just take a minute to exhale. Hopefully all of us had enough time and space to finish our taxes this week. How many of you were able to, to get the, uh, the taxes into the mail? Uh, the, Benjamin Franklin once said, there's three certainties of life, death, taxes, and learning new things. And so I hope that our time in scripture, by the sovereignty of God, we find ourselves in a very appropriate story of the ministry and life of Jesus for those three things specifically this morning. We talk about uh, death, we talk about taxes, and I hope that we all leave here with a, a new understanding of where we fit in the story of God in our day. And as you were filling out your taxes and sending them off, you may have had a moment uh, where you realize that we, as believers and followers of Jesus, have two higher powers that we answer to. Just two weeks ago, we were praising Jesus as king. Praise God. He has overcome the grave. He has conquered sin and death. We now pledge allegiance to him as king of all the earth. And a few days ago, we also paid our tribute to the higher powers of the land that we live in. And sometimes that tension feels very palpable. We can feel the split heart that we live in as we have to answer to two authorities in our lives. And this was not something that was uh, spared in the storyline of Jesus. As he enters into his final week of life, he is being hailed as king. And many people are wondering what his kingship will mean for the existing authorities and powers already in the land. And so this morning we're going to look at a passage of scripture that shows his incredible way to deal with the, the opposing tensions of his day. And I hope that as we study this and think of the incredible wisdom on display in the responses of Jesus to questions about this very topic, we will find some clarity for our day as well. When we think about the authority of the word of God, the power of Christ, and also the existing authorities that are awaiting us in the land that we live in. So the story picks up in Mark chapter 12 in verse 13. It says, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And so as we get into the uh, trap that they're about to lay, let's recall the context. If you remember last week, we, re we saw a story where Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it from all of the ways that people were using the temple tax and the ways to convert money to line their own pockets. And he chased out the money changers and he chased out those who were selling wares for people to offer a sacrifice. And it said in Mark 11, verse 18, and the scribes and the chief priests heard it and they sought how they might destroy him for they feared him. So they saw that whole episode as a threat to their local economy and their local power structure. And the unfolding of the Gospel of Mark leading to his ultimate betrayal, death, and resurrection will be a series of attempted traps 
to slow down his momentum in all of the things that he was doing to cleanse Israel. And this will be one of many. We won't cover every interaction in all the ways that the opposition tried to stop Jesus from what he was coming to do. And once again, as we've done throughout the Gospel of Mark series, I'll refer you to the listener's commentary for full details on every interaction that Jesus had where people were trying to prove that he, that he couldn't be the Savior of all. That they would do something to where they could split the crowds and people would be divided and some people would turn on him. Today we'll look at one of those snapshots in the form of a question, as was already previewed, about taxes. And as we look at the question that we're about to examine, first let's look at their intentions. It says they desire to catch him in his words. Uh, one thing we can take from that is uh, when you want to catch someone in their words, you don't have a lot to catch them in their life. All the attempts to catch Jesus had to be clever and they had to be conniving because by all accounts, Jesus was not someone that was worthy of betrayal or death. We can also notice who the powers that be sent to approach Jesus. It said they sent the Pharisees and they sent the Herodians. Now, these are normally very opposing groups in their own right. The Pharisees, as we've studied throughout this series were people who were very, very committed to the law of Moses. They loved their national identity found in Scripture and their call to be God's holy and set-apart people, and they longed for, they desired independence for their nation. Meaning, when they start thinking about taxes to a higher power, that's something that they want to find an answer away from so they can be restored into not having to answer to a power that was not their own. The Herodians, you may be able to tell by their name, actually were the opposite in effect. They were people who had a, a, almost a loyalist mindset to the Roman Empire because Rome had assigned in their region Herod and his sons to oversee them, and they found allegiance to them as a way to make nice with Rome, and they were much more of a political party who had their comfort in the current existing power. So as they start to consider this question, we already have opposing views, which is one of the ways that we continue to see these traps laid. We are going to find Jesus in a lose-lose situation. And in their opposing views, they hope that they can trap him. Isn't it interesting that in all of the ways that Jesus comes to unite people, sometimes the best way that we find people united in the name of Jesus is it against him. In all of the things that await us for the opposition of Christ, it's funny how often those opposing to Christ will find one common denominator, and that is that they oppose Christ. And such it is in the world that we live in now. And now we look further into the trap that will be laid. It says in Mark, 14, or Mark chapter 12, verse 14. And when they had come to him, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
That's a very long and verbose way to ask a very short question. And so notice what they're already doing in the approach to Jesus. They have flattered him with many words, saying very truthful things about him. They call him a teacher who is true, who cares about no one. And they are right about that, not in the sense that Jesus doesn't care about us, but the idea being that Jesus is not looking to one person's opinion and fearing the uh, response of his answer as a reason to give his answer. Good reminder for us that even in their flattery, they were saying true things about Jesus. He is not worried about the opinions of people. He is always the way and the truth and the life. And it's also something for us to consider as we navigate the opposition of our times that flattery is just something to watch out for, isn't it? Uh, this week, as I was studying the approach of people who were trying to catch someone in an answer that they didn't mean to give, my very own daughters <laughs> approached me with flattery that I succumbed to. Uh, my, my oldest daughter came up to me, and I don't know uh, where she got such charisma. It must be from her mother. <laughs> But she said, Dad, this clear sky makes your eyes look so blue. And I was, as you can imagine, just melted inside, thinking nothing other than her deep love and desire to honor me as her father. And I was totally blindsided in the very next move when she said, do you think we could go get some ice cream on this warm day? <laughs> the flattery of a child to get the desired outcome of a father. As I was preparing this, I found a quote that said, flattery is like perfume. It should be smelt and not swallowed. As we leave this place and we think about fearing people and the opposing opinions, sometimes you're worried that the flattery that awaits all of us will no longer be there. Flattery is not something that we should be swayed by in our times. We are not meant to overcome the world and push forth the mission of the gospel by winning people's popular opinion of who we are, and this is something that Jesus himself will display as he says his answer. But they repeat themselves at the end of verse 14. It says, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Beware of the trap of the false dichotomy. Is it yes or is it no? The taxes they were referring to was a poll tax or a census tax, and it was a very divisive issue. It was a tax that Jewish people had to pay simply for being occupied by the Roman forces. In other words, every time you paid that tax, it was a reminder that you belonged underneath the authority of Rome. And so for the Pharisees who desired to be separate, it was a tax that it was nails on the chalkboard. And so if Jesus gets this answer wrong, he will, in fact, either alienate those who were hoping that he would be a Messiah that came in the name of Hosanna to cleanse and to save them from the oppressive Gentiles, or if he says, go ahead and pay it, he loses them. If he says, don't pay it, the Romans now look at him as a zealot and a potential insurrectionist. We live in a time where there are many moments of opposition to Christ that would love to put us in one camp or the other. We live in a time where our country seems to be divided right down the middle, left and right. And as much as we try to honor 
our king and the, the, the way of the land, it is sometimes tempting to believe that we have to land on one extreme or the other. And I have to say, I appreciate the wisdom of Jesus to see through a yes or no dichotomy because oftentimes I find myself as a pastor, as someone that would answer the questions on behalf of a church that can feel very tense. And so maybe I can share some of them with you so we can understand how tense this moment may have felt for Jesus. Pastor of a church comes, or someone approaches the pastor of a church, and they say, do you accept all people into your church, no matter their lifestyle? That's a yes or a no. And depending on how you answer that question, I'll know exactly what kind of church you are. Well, that question, as you may feel even in your hearts, is not a yes or no question. We are certainly a come-as-you-are church, but we are a church that desires the Word of God to cleanse us from all of the crazy lifestyles that we bring into this church. Someone could come to a pastor of church and say, do all lives matter? And you could think, well, that's a yes or no question. It seems obvious that all lives matter, and yet underneath the answer could fill, could uh, someone's response could be filtered by the divide of our country. And yet we get pulled at the seams with people wanting to trap Christ. And you may have felt those traps. You may have tried to approach the, line mine, the landmine of our culture by saying nothing and avoiding conversations and treating religion and politics as something that should never be discussed and never be thought through. But look what Jesus does. He says, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you test me? This is one of the first ways that we as believers can be like Jesus to understand the times that we live in that have been constant from the beginning. We are studying tension from the first century and there have been political and religious and spiritual tensions from the first century till now. And one of the ways that Jesus is already displaying the wisdom of a master is by looking through their question into their heart. He says, knowing their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is often thought of in the way that we go through the word as our words not lining up with our actions. But hypocrisy could also be our questions not lining up with our hearts. What are we really wrestling with when we wrestle with the truth? What do we really want to know when we try to read the Bible and understand its sexual ethics? What it's calling us to be as second citizens of earth? Are we wrestling our politics in or are we wrestling the truth out? It reminds me of a, a little tiny bit of mission that I got to do through this church years and years ago. Some of you may remember, we, uh, we, we, me and a few other guys took a camera and we just started going around to different cities, taking a survey of our country on what people believed about God, asking them questions, and then trying to have a dialogue that would turn questions 
into wrestling and answer and potentially see someone go through a distant relationship with God and draw them closer with just conversations. And 10 years ago, those questions looked so much different than they do now. But at the heart of it, the difference between someone who could be reasoned with and someone who only has questions that will never lead them closer to Christ is the heart. It's not the question itself. And here's one way that we saw that to be true at the very end of all of the times that we had these people, we would always ask one question. If I could answer every single one of your questions about Jesus, if I could overcome every one of your objections for the historicity of Christ and the, the, the sins of the church and the reality of the resurrection, and you knew that God was real and he displayed himself through the power of his son, would you follow him? And shockingly, people who are being honest, even with the thought experiment that every question and every tension could be dealt with, true of our time, they will always be changing, but there will always be a cultural question and tension that we as believers need to find the middle way for. And those who have a genuine heart to know the answer can actually be one to Christ. And those who are only looking for reasons to object him or to deny him, it's actually not about the question. And Jesus says they're actually hypocrites testing him only. St. Jerome, another quote I found interesting for our time, the first virtue of the respondent is to know the mind of the questioner and to adapt his answer accordingly. And so this Sunday morning as we, as we go through Jesus in the opposition and all of the wise counsel he would give to people, we welcome those wrestling with the truth and struggling with the tensions of our culture. And we also pray that the heart would be made soft for how God wants to show himself to you. And this is the wisdom of Jesus now. He says to them, after saying, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius. We point out once again, he didn't say yes, and he didn't say no. He gives them something that they already had in their possession as an object lesson for the answer that they were already living under. And so it says in verse 16, so they brought it and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And so for the purposes of the visual object lesson that Jesus was giving, here is the coin that Jesus brought uh, out of the crowd and he holds it up and he says, whose image? is on this coin. And then he says, whose inscription? So the image is Tiberius Caesar, and the inscription is the son of the divine Augustus. The answer to their question was that they had already been in submission to Caesar through the practical possession of this coin. Jesus shows them that the coin already belongs to Caesar. Caesar had put his face on it. Caesar had given himself the title, son of the divine, and they themselves, in possession of the coin, can answer the question for themselves. It's Caesar's coin. And so what does he say to them after he shows them who the coin belongs to? 
In verse 17, Jesus answered and said to them, so render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It belongs to Caesar, give it back to him. In some ways, this is a healthy reminder for any of you questioning that God, in fact, does ordain human government. (laughs) Caesar, Augustus, and the Roman Empire, and all of the governments that will rise and fall subsequently, are, in fact, of God's divine providence and allowance for government to curb human chaos. So for those of you who paid your taxes, filled out your paperwork, you theologically are sound in your obedience to the U.S. government that God has ordained order in government. In other words, human government, as flawed as it may be, is better than human anarchy. And for those of you questioning that tension, I invite you to read the first six chapters of Genesis and watch what happens when God allows man to live with no ordained law or lawgiver. And it was absolute chaos that ended in a global flood. God redeems humanity and issues a law to represent order and government. And that order and government in the day of Jesus came to them in the form of Caesar Augustus, or Tiberius Caesar. And in one sense, we have half of our answer. The Herodians may listen to this and say, well, if he's not against us, at least he's for us. There will be no insurrection. There will be no rebellion. The zealots will be calmed. And the Pharisees may be half smiling that they can stir up the crowd against him to reject him as the Messiah. But in the half answer, he's actually going to give an answer that will change the course of human history and give us the wisdom of this middle way that he found that we live by even to this day. Give to Caesar's, what is Caesar's? The coin belongs to him. And wherever the coin of Caesar is issued and has any monetary value, that is the rule of Caesar. He owns the area where you use his money. And the U.S. dollar from sea to shining sea reminds us that U.S. government is in control. Go to Europe and you'll have to exchange it because there's another government and the money will remind you of that. But that money pointing to an authority of government Even the authority of an emperor does not make that emperor God. And now in the second half of Jesus' wise answer, he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and give to God the things that are God. In other words, Caesar has the money, but he is not God. And now he says to the Pharisees, you, in fact, can continue to live for God in the occupation of Rome. And we say, as we pay our taxes and have a moment to reflect on our dual citizenship, both of earth and of heaven, whatever currency is in your wallet, whatever your bank account is referencing the money of when you look at it, is your citizenship on earth. But you don't have to wonder whether or not you have to choose between allegiance to the U.S. government and ultimate allegiance to God. And that's true for every believer around the world. They still, in the occupation of the earthly governments, 
can give to God. And this is where we get that third part of the Benjamin Franklin invitation this morning. I hope this is where we can learn something new about our consideration of how we give to God this morning. The Pharisees may have heard, render unto God what is God's, and they're thinking, okay, we can continue to do all of our sacrifices and maybe do our temple tax as well. We continue render unto God our commitment to the law. Scribes can continue to render unto God their commitment to writing down all of the works of the Bible. But what is it truly getting at that we can give to God what is God's? What does that mean for your life right now? How can you both live in the United States appreciating the money and the resources of the government that God has ordained to order our little civilization and also have a new and, and revived vision for what you are supposed to give to God and God alone? There's one little clue in this passage of Scripture to tell us that Jesus was getting at something more profound than you can see the first read. When he had them bring the coin out for Tiberius Caesar, he said, whose image is on that? And then when he said, render unto God, we can extend the question to where does God put his image? Caesar to show his authority, to show his power, to show the reaches of his kingdom, issues coins, and he stamps his face all over these coins, and then he sends them out. Where has God stamped his image? In Genesis chapter 1, we get a story that now you read through the lens of God minting money. It says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion or authority over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him and made them female, male and, he, and female, he created them. In the economy of God, he issues no paper or coin to show his authority and his power and the reaches of his kingdom. He stamps his image on his people. And he says to his people, just as a coin represents the power and the authority of Caesar, you represent me to earth. You render not your stuff or your money. You render your life to God. This morning we have a renewed vision that the government will never tax our heart or our mind the government will never own our soul. God has put breath into our lungs and he has imprinted on us the uniqueness of his character onto man and woman alone and says, wherever my people go, my, this world that I've made will know that my authority has reached the ends of the earth. 
And so I hope you had a moment or someone in your family can remind you of this moment where you had to sit at the table, you had to put in your numbers and you had to do your taxes and you rendered unto the United States what belonged to them. And it is a small picture of what God calls us to do as we belong to him. We have a moment in God's word, in our time and our commitment to him through prayer, in a gathering of the corporate body of Christ to worship and to praise him, to say, now God, this is what belongs to you. Take my life. Take everything that you have stamped me with, that I would reflect your glory to the world, and let it bring you glory and honor and praise. So some ways for us to think about that practically as we leave here as the currency of God in your schools, in your workplace, in your households, that where you go, the authority and the power and the goodness of God would go as well. It says in Romans chapter 28, or chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What a fantastic verse, by the way. A reminder that you are here this morning as image bearers of God, and he's going to work out your little circulation in his economy to bring him glory according to your call. And what is your call? For whom he foreknew, he, pre he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In Christ, we have the visible image of the invisible God. Tiberius was the divine son of Augustus, and Jesus is the divine son of the Father, and now our calling is to follow after him, born again to be image bearers, following after Jesus. Give God your life. And then it says in Colossians chapter 3, Now you yourselves are to put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filth, language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Your purpose is to be an image bearer of God. And as you go through the baptism waters and you put off the old man, you come out of the water renewed what? Into the knowledge of the image. Into the knowledge of why you were made. We study God's word. We long to know him more so that we can be renewed into the knowledge of who we reflect. So you love God and you desire to know God so that when you live in the, in the world as his image bearer, you know this new man and the new mission you are called to walk in. No longer angry or malice, no longer lying, but reflecting the image of God. Your call is to give God your life and your mission is to reflect the beautiful love and patience and long-suffering of God anywhere he sends you like a coin in the economy of God. One of the ways this also will shape us or renew us into who we are as God's image is 
not only how we reflect him or see ourselves in his image, but how we look out into the world that God made. The phrase that you saw in our Genesis chapter 1 passage was the imago Dei. It's Latin for image of God, a phrase that theologians use to describe where humanity gets its worth. Why do we care about human rights, about honoring all people, about things like sexual ethic and the design of marriage? Why do we care so much as humans about equality and fairness and justice and mercy? The answer is because humans bear the image of God. And they are valuable because he has put his worth into them. The same reason you care about a piece of paper with $100 around it. Because the government has put value into it. And so now we think through the value and where it comes from for your neighbors, your classmates, and your coworkers, and even your enemies. I share a quote with you. My daughter is actually simultaneously trying to get ice cream and also working on a book report by Martin Luther King Jr., or of Martin Luther King Jr. And I found this to be the perfect way that we can see ourselves as two citizens. He says, the Imago Dei gives every person inherent worth no matter their race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. He paid taxes to a government that said he had to ride in the back of the bus and drink from a different drinking fountain and go to a different school. And he lived in a time where he was paying taxes to causes that were harmful. And yet, with the power of the Omago Day, he became a currency of a much more meaningful and powerful dynamic. He lived within his own system with a greater, higher power as his aim and his reflection. And he said, because of that, I can work with whatever government restrictions I have to honor the ultimate authority of my life. And we honor and respect and love our brothers and sisters living out the Imago Dei vision for God's economy in the underground church in Iran, trying to figure out how to honor their Caesar. Our brothers and sisters working in labor camps in North Korea, trying to figure out how to live under a Caesar, but reflect the power of the Almighty God. And you yourselves live in a time of tension left and right, Republican and Democrat. But you live with the reflection of the ultimate power that can shine through all of it. And so if you're a believer, as excited as you were to be done with taxes, you're excited now to leave with the mission to give unto God what is God's. To render unto the United States what belongs to them and to render unto Christ what belongs to him, your very being. And if you're not yet a part of the citizenship of heaven, as we call it, 
This is the perfect Sunday to come. Because I want to end by looking at just one more little story that reminds us how much God loves every single person that he has made and how he longs for every single person to know the joy of coming into his economy. And of course, it's a parable about a coin. It's in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Just like that moment, if we continue our theme of just the season of our tax year, rejoice, I got a refund for my taxes. <laughs> rejoice, I put in all the numbers, I'm getting money back. I'm so excited, I'm taking you all to dinner. Jesus says, likewise, with that same feeling of excitement about money that comes in, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angels over, of God over one sinner who repents. Over one little image bearer who didn't know their worth. They did not know that they had ultimate value and worth not because of where they lined up in culture or how much money they had in their bank account, but they heard this good news gospel message that their worth is because they were made by a creator who put his fingerprint of love and kindness on their life, and he will redeem them and bring them back into the economy of God. That is why all of us have worth. That is the gospel of grace that we have been redeemed and brought back, not because of anything that we've done, but because like little lost coins, God sent his son to find us and bring us home. And that was all made possible by the power of the cross. So we'll consider all of these things as we hold in our hands the price that God paid to redeem you, to bring you back into the economy, to put worth and value on every one of our souls. It, would, it will be the death portion of death taxes and learning new things. Jesus died so that we could live, so that we could be brought back, bought with a price, his precious blood. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could be the righteousness of God.